0: Well, what I'd always noticed, you know, was why men always had to be the drivers, right? And this was kind of a symbol of how they behaved in real life, in marriages and in relationships and in business world and in politics and everywhere. They were always having to be the drivers.
1: Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mekas. This episode is the ninth in the long run series where I speak with artists who've had practices spanning 60 years and this time I'm talking with Margaret Dodd. I first discovered Margaret as I imagine many people would have through her brilliant ceramic holding cars from the early 1970s, where some are dressed up as brides, others as mothers and babies. Titled This Woman is Not a Car, the series also included a film. Based in feminist concerns, the iconic collection looks at themes central to Dodd's work femininity and masculinity, sexuality, capitalism, and the links between car manufacturing and personal and national identity. Margaret and I talk about these things. We talk about her upbringing in Adelaide, her move to America with her husband, and her time studying art in California. We also reflect on how she became part of the funk ceramics movement in the 1960s, which brought much humour and less convention to ceramics, Margaret also tells us her thoughts on being a housewife, the isolation she felt when she moved back to Adelaide after being in the US, and how this influenced the profound feminism of her work. And before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this series, Leonard Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, who are based in Melbourne and Sydney. You once wrote... And I quote, in South Australia in the 1950s, the idea of simply being a painter or a sculptor was impossibly self-indulgent, unless you were from a wealthy family who appreciated art. And that quote really made me wonder what your family thought about art and what was making you interested in art when you were younger.
0: Well... My mum came from a farming, she was about number 11 in a farming family and she was the only one that went to high school. So she she became a teacher and she was quite artistic, like top marks for blackboard illustration. (laughs) (laughs) And then she did a lot of painting when she was older, you know. She joined a Sunday afternoon painting group and there were some artistic sort of, um, you know, endeavours on my dad's side, you know, generations back. And so, I mean, their attitude was they weren't sort of like art devotees or anything like that and we were living in the country. But the thing about, like, I wanted to go to art school and um, the only way they would encourage me to go to art school is if I trained to be a teacher, which is actually a bit different from thinking, oh, yes, you know, She'll get married, and you know she won't need a job, which was probably the pre- the prevalent attitude in those days. So that was something, right? Yeah, but teaching, being coming an art teacher, wasn't really what I wanted to do because I didn't actually like. By the time I got that old, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be anywhere near a school, to be honest. <laughs> but I, that was my only choice, so I had to sign up to train as an art teacher to go to art school, and I was very jealous. Girls who and boys that were there who actually were there just to study art, you know, that was just great. Yeah, so it was it was limited, but I was at art school, you know. Um, as you know, there was this sort of artistic beat-nicky kind of underbelly in Adelaide in those days. We're getting off the subject with of my parents now.
1: No, no, it was that was interesting that you you mentioned to me earlier that there was a kind of beatnik influence, because that wasn't something that I really picked would have come to Adelaide in that time, but clearly it did.
0: I was very prim, you know, like on the, like if you went shopping, it was all very prim, you know, all the clothes were very conservative. But then we didn't buy clothes much in those days. We made them except for underwear, of course. But what I haven't said about my parents was that mum actually, um, she she used to go and dig up clay, you know, and we used to make things out of clay. And um, she got very interested. In you know ceramics and stuff like that, and kind of you know built a a wheel to throw on out of a a big ploughshare thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was all very uh, you know homemade everything. <laughs> yeah, so she she got me going a bit on on you know making little pots and little sculptures and things. Even you know when I was a kid, but the attitude was you know art wasn't a career probably for anyone.
1: And I guess, you know, kind of going with the mandate of the time, you were married at 21 and then you had your first child at 23. And it seems like from what you've written at that time, you found it hard to have a domestic life and an art practice together.
0: Yeah, I'd sort of, by the time I'd, you know, finished teaching, I'd almost sort of, I'd got a bit disgusted with teaching because it seemed a bit like therapy or something for kids. So by the time I had a child, I'd sort of hadn't given up, but I wasn't. um, I definitely, you know, put it on the back burner. And then when we got to New Haven, in Connecticut, um, all of a sudden, you know, there was all this um, these art museums in um, America that we, you know, went to see all this stuff. And and there was a very famous art school that had been Joseph Albers had been the director of this art school in New Haven and he'd set that art school up and it was a school of art and architecture. And I knew people that, you know, had been students, wives they were, and who wanted to be artists. So it began to sort of filter in, you know, that, and I, but I, I tried to do do stuff but I just couldn't um, really, I, I couldn't really do it in, in New Haven. So that's when I decided The next place we went, I was going to go to study again and do sculpture, which I had done a little bit of, but not a huge amount, you know.
1: Yeah. Can we backtrack a tiny bit? Because your husband, he was a theoretical physicist. Yes. And you ended up moving to America in the 1960s for his work and he landed at Yale. And then there you sort of fell in with, a, I I guess, a, a wives' group, but they were really interested in feminist thought and theory, which I loved. <laughs> they
0: had two wives' categories at Yarrow. There were Yarrow dames, who were wives who'd been there for quite a while and their, their husbands were teachers, you know, lecturers. And then there were Narrow, Narrow, Yarrow newcomers, you know, who hadn't been there very long. And that had international... Of course, there was lots of international wives there. And so it was a very broad, interesting group. And at that stage in the 60s, The university was where the radical thinking was, you know, in philosophy departments and places like that in America. So that became, you know, quite an important social sort of connection for me. Yeah, I started thinking a bit differently, you know, and realising that yeah, there was political unrest. (laughs) You know, the Vietnam War and all those things and LBJ was the president at that stage. You could meet LBJ at a party, you know, at Yale. It was that sort of a float. <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there were some pretty unconventional women there. And that must have been how I got hold of Betty Friedan's book. And um, Yeah, The Feminine Mystique. Yeah. And I also. Um, at this point, you know you've got a one-year-old or a six-months-to-one-year-old baby, and you're kind of, you know, in a a flat, you know, in a building, and the only sort of social outlets other 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 wives, who you might or might not, but you know, made good friends with, or um other people in the building, you know, or so yeah, I just sort of felt this is too isolating. This motherhood business is very isolating and I need to get out amongst you know I have to make some friends with people who are artists and and get back into art to kind of you know that's when I realized that I really needed to do that you know I wasn't going to ever I wasn't going to be happy you know being a housewife actually I mean I always knew that but I hadn't thought it would be like that.
1: Yes can we backtrack to that time in California because you were studying art there in the late 60s and you were taught sculpture by Robert Arneson, and your peers included people like Dave Gilhooly, Richard Shaw, and Bruce Nauman. That seems like a pretty incredible education to have.
0: Oh, look, it was extraordinary because it, the, the campus there was actually originally an agricultural campus, and they'd introduced art. Quite fairly recently, and recruited people like Robert Arneson to teach ceramics, and you know Roy Deforest to teach painting, and Dave um, Wayne T who like they all been all became very well known artists. And there was very vigorous kind of alternative art scene in Northern California. So, and 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 they you had to be very aware, you know, of what was going on. You had to read Art Forum, and you had to be aware of what artists were doing, and. Yeah, so in other words, I got back a bit more into the art school kind of um, society there. Even though I was still having, I did a lot of my actual work in my kitchen. You know, I took a one of the sculpture stands from the art from TB9 temporary building nine that was back home. You know, and worked in my kitchen as well when I when I couldn't just be over there all the time and I had to organise a babysitter for my son, who was you know like a toddler by then but it was a pretty, it was just a totally different world you know and you expected to take the what you were doing seriously you know and critically and in the ceramics thing it was definitely challenging convention
1: yeah and so are you talking about the funk ceramics art movement there
0: Yeah, well, because what happened was that, like, all of these people, they could all throw pots, but I found that I didn't like throwing pots at all. I wasn't good at it, and I couldn't see the point, you know. So all my pots got kind of deformed, you know, and turned very weird. So then I, and then Arneson said, well, I'm teaching a a ceramic sculpture course. You should do that. And immediately, uh, first piece I made, he really liked it, and um, I've still got it. Actually, it was a fake funk truck, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was sort of made like a stuffed toy to look like a stuffed toy, but it was actually clay, and it was a truck. So, and it referred, um, you know, to a Dennis Oppenheim piece I'd seen. Yeah, so this kind of set off this whole sort, of, you know, vehicle thing. But it, it interested me because I've been interested in portraits of people, you know, faces. i always been interested in drawing faces. i draw hundreds of them. And I just thought, cars are like clothes, you know, they're like portraits. Yeah, so it became like a metaphor, totally, for me.
1: Right. Can we maybe backtrack slightly yes. to the early 70s when you begin making the ceramics for this woman is not a car? I, I'm just curious, like where did the idea first come from?
0: Well, when I was in, in Holland in 1974 for about a year and a half, the Stedelijk Museum used to have evenings on Wednesday nights or something when it was open, and um, I went there and I saw films made. Actually, one, some of them were. One of them was by somebody who was married to uh, one of the lecturers at Davis when I was there, and he was the filmmaker. That was. William T. Wiley, and um, Dorothy Wiley and and another woman, a Swedish woman, had made a film about housework, and that was in that, and there were other animations, and there was also Messes of the Afternoon by Maya Deren, who was a very um, experimental filmmaker, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, and she... She, her work's very famous, very well known now. Yeah. But that. It was a very surreal film and there was repetition in it. It was in black and white and it really inspired me to think, you know, all I'd seen by then, you know, till then was conventional, you know, featured films. It, it didn't really occur to me that it was something, an art, it was an art form, you know? You weren't kind of just making a static object, stayed in an art gallery, you were making it to the world, you know? All I really had to do when I got back to Adelaide, was find the means. So I applied to, for a grant to make this little animation and the idea was to animate the cars, you know. I tried that amazing by putting one of my ceramic cars on the booze of my car and then driving it and filming it through the through the uh, windscreen. But that wasn't very um, sensible, really. But, you know, the techniques, you know, how are you going to make it look like it's going in a, in an environment and... All the rest of it. So I just sat down and wrote kind of a script and then enough money to, you know, get a short film into the can. And then, then I got really serious about um, how to make it, you know. Obviously, it turned into a sort of cross between a, a drama and a surreal film and an animation, you know. It had all of those elements in it.
1: It interested me how later on you wrote about that film and you said that it didn't interest or please, I guess, a lot of feminists.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, it wasn't... When I made it, it was a bit too kind of sex-oriented for some people. Like, it didn't get shown in in, in cinemas. It got knocked back because it was a bit too kind of, you know, it w- would have been censored. <laughs> <laughs> But you've got to realise that, a sort of, you know, the lot of the world hadn't really kind of caught up with the the sixties in America until about the nineteen nineties, I think in Australia. I mean, it doesn't wouldn't rouse arouse much of a kind of an eyebrow these days.
1: But it's funny because you also sent me those clippings of car ads from the nineteen seventies. And they are so overtly sexualized, and th- the way women are sexualized in them, it's pretty full on, actually. Like, it's, I mean, it's, it's so demeaning. And I guess when you were looking at those ads, or when you were seeing how men and women were relating to each other with cars in, in that sphere of relation, what were you noticing?
0: I, well, well, what I'd always noticed, you know, was the way men always had to be the drivers, right? And this was kind of a symbol of how they behaved in real life, in marriages and in relationships and in business world and in politics and everywhere. They were always having to be the drivers. So, you know, women driving was kind of a little kind of symbol, you know, and not kind of, you know, always having a man at the service station to fill up your car. And Or, I don't know whether you noticed, but... There was an article about a, a film that Steven Spielberg was involved in, and that was a, a, satirical comedy about a, a car yard, and it was and they had dressed up all their wives and sisters in, in kind of you know totally sexy kind of sex doll kind of outfits, you know, to try and bring in the customers. <laughs> you can see like you know the woman bending over the car, you know, with but it was it was um I think it was supposed to be a comedy, but it was not just the <laughs> Right on point, you know. Um
1: to, there was something interesting you said about the film where you said to me I was filming the nightmare world in the mother's head and I wondered like what to you was that nightmare world for her?
0: That was that was born from my um my year at Holden Hill, the other suburb when I came back from Adelaide, um, from America and I saw what the women around me were, what their lives were like because they weren't wealthy women. You know, they were like wives of how, uh, firefighters and people like that with lots of kids, you know, and the experiences, for me, it was very isolating, but for them, it was very hard, you know. They had to kind of go out and cut sandwiches to make a bit of extra money, you know, because their men husbands didn't earn much and when one of them had... Um, had decided she didn't want to have six kids and she got pregnant and she wanted to get an abortion. The only way she could get an abortion is if she agreed to have herself sterilised at the same time. Oh, gosh. Yeah, this is in the late 60s. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of made me want to make a film. I think I can make a film about that situation and what it's like being in the head. Of a woman in that situation, and as it was, uh, um, then I was introduced to—I had been introduced to um, Pauline, who became the mother in the film, and she had four kids, and she sort of—I think she said somewhere, "This is my, this is my life." <laughs> so it became that kind of narrative thing, and the nightmare part sort of um, really was the, the kind of animation, and and uh, the rest of it was kind of the um, Context, I suppose.
1: It must be really fascinating for you that considering, I guess, what's happened with cars and car manufacturing, and particularly in Adelaide, where, you know, the 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 central car manufacturing beholden was until twenty seventeen. I mean, that demise of that industry, it makes your sculptures I mean, I think it changes the meaning retrospectively of them a little bit, or it or it gives another layer to them.
0: Well, the thing is, nationally, you know, we were sort of so until and, until the um, the Labour government back in the back in the 80s um, allowed you know whole stop taxing, uh, in, you know, imported cars so much. It was sort of like Australia's own car, and it was marketed as such, even though it was actually designed, you know, by General Motors and and manufactured in Australia. It was somebody's dream to make Australia's own car. And um, when I made that bride, I thought this is the bride of Australia, you know. <laughs> but it was really about, about the irony, you know. That was about capitalism, international corporate capitalism. Yeah, so anyhow, I don't know whether that, does that answer that point?
1: It does, but I'm also interested in your take on the end of holding car manufacturing in Australia.
0: I was really pissed off in a sense when they actually, um, when what finally happens, which is what happens in this capitalist, corporate, international, global <laughs> economy, mm-hmm. is that the big company somewhere decides to, to just um, take it from Australia and, and do it somewhere else, you know. And it was the end of this kind of fantasy, you know, about Australia's identity the thing about all the manufacturing going overseas a whole generation of workers the, the you know jobs making something you know whether it was sheets and blankets or cars or that really that pissed me off because i could just i could just feel for all those people you know and in adelaide elizabeth was actually built for general motors you know and to bring all these british migrants out to work there we did get a lot of some pretty good bands out of it called Chisel and, and um, all the rest of them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you were in a band yourself.
0: Yeah. I'd learned to play the drums from a, uh, one of my boyfriends. And then I heard about this women's band and their, their drummer resigned or something happened. So I thought, oh, I could try filling in for you if you like, you know. Yeah. So I ended up playing in it for a year or two. So I actually went and had lessons in how to play the drums as well. <laughs> we did a lot of Patti Smith songs and things like that, but it wasn't just a covers band, you know. People wrote the songs as well. But as we would get to the present, it's a whole other... It's just going on. You know, the same things are all kind of still being fought, aren't they?
1: What do you mean by the same things? What does that mean to you?
0: What it means is that women are still struggling to actually have any power in the world, really, and the combination of trying to have a family and raise children and and have a say in anything is still almost impossible. You know, when, when one of your best politicians is a woman sort of decides not to try and take over the leadership because she's got a family and she doesn't want to, you know, she wants to focus on that as well. You know what I mean? This doesn't happen with men. And um, mm-hmm. there was an article um, which I quoted in that th- the statement,
1: yeah, the statement for your solo show at the Art Gallery of South Australia in 2020.
0: Yeah, well, Marilyn Waring, she was the one woman in, in New Zealand politics back in the Muldoon era, you know, and she was, there was about 60 men in their parliament, one woman. And she's still going and she, she's very astute. And she, she just, I read this article about her, and she said, if it isn't counted, it counts for nothing. And she was talking about the GDP, and she was talking about women's work of raising children and whatnot. You know, if you're not paid to do it, it doesn't count because it isn't counted in the economy. And that's still the case. You know, and you see it right? when you look at you know single mothers' pensions and just about every job that's to do with caring for people—they're all underpaid or not paid or done by volunteers who are new, often often women as well. So, not enough has changed. If I want to have a career, should I get my eggs frozen so I can have a child later on if I change my mind? But I need to get the career going first. You know, that's that's a common for, you know dilemma for women now.
1: Hearing you say all of those things, do you feel kind of hopeful about where things are heading or do things like the Me Too movement give you hope?
0: I think we're in a very urgent situation and I just absolutely think that the politicians who should know better are actually behaving in a criminal fashion, pursuing like uh, immediate kind of profit for something like mining companies and – I'm wanting to open coal mines, you know, and when the planet's on a definitely, you know, on a a very, very, very problematic trajectory. Massive migrations of people away or to from different places. It's going to cause huge amounts of extinctions of wildlife and plant life. And I mean, the rate it's going now, people are only just seemingly waking up to the fact that, you know, like there's massive fires in America and people, you know, in Brazil, they're kind of demolishing the rainforest, and Europe's having bushfires and floods, and, you know, that's happening everywhere, and they're, they're firmly, Australia's firmly shutting its political eyes. And
1: Yeah. When you're, as an artist, and you're watching
0: this happen, what
1: do you think the role of contemporary art is in a world like this?
0: Well, I think it's more the role of artists because, like, they've been telling us lately that more people go to art galleries and and theatres than go to the football, believe it or not. They wouldn't know to watch the news, but, you know. So people do kind of relate to art, but it goes also back to that kind of thing I felt. I mean, I I love going to the art gallery in Adelaide, you know. Like, it's, to me, it's... uh, I get really into another headspace altogether. It's in a way, it's so comforting, I think, to know that there's so many amazing things being done by people. Yeah, it's all focused in that one spot. And then you walk out of the street and it's, you know, <laughs> everything else. And, yeah, and they're demolishing everything that looks good, you know, and, and building massive buildings and, yeah. <laughs> but in there, it's like a shrine and it's, it's, it's fantastic. But, but, but I, I don't know what to say about it. But I do think, and I think that artists are people who do in general reflect because even some of the most conventional art, is still a celebration of something beautiful, you know, like some, a landscape, you know, or plants or flowers. Or, and that actually makes people look for alternatives. I think lots of artists look for alternatives to the commercial world. I think artists do and therefore the work that they're doing reflects that.
1: And that was Margaret Dodd for this ninth episode of The Long Run. You can also listen back to previous episodes with Vivian Binns, Stellark, Mervyn Bishop, Suzanne Archer, Robert Owen, Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos and John Walsley. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us or otherwise listen at ArtGuide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art related features and
0: interviews from across the country.